0: Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: We need a much clearer view of our own biases and preconceptions and emotional responses because the most expert people can fool themselves if they want to. Well, we've all been
2: pushed around Hello and welcome to Here It's Complicated with Tanya Gooden the podcast that helps you untangle your relationship with your phone.
0: Found, we've all been
2: pushed around. This is a podcast about learning to live healthily and happily with technology and the digital world and about understanding why sometimes that's so hard to do. Because in learning how to step away from our phones more, we're actually learning how to focus more on our relationships, our work and our health, leaving us happier, healthier and with hours more time in our day.
0: Away, yeah.
2: I'm your host, Tanya Goodin, author and founder of Digital Wellbeing Movement, Time to Log Off. Each week, I'll be asking a new guest what they've learnt about themselves from the relationship they have with the tiny tyrant in their pocket, their smartphone. So I don't know about you, but I feel like I've spent the last 12 months absolutely drowning in numbers and graphs and charts and trying to make sense of them all. Our numbers, infection rates, vaccination take-ups, never have we been provided with so much data and left to try to make sense of it. So my guest today is the perfect person to talk to about this because he wants us to just calm down and look at numbers clearly as a way of making sense of the world. As he says, statistics are not about winning political arguments, they're life or death stuff because they show us things we can't see in any other way. I'm talking today to Tim Harford who is a Financial Times columnist, a BBC broadcaster and the author of eight best-selling books. Uh, His latest book, How to Make the World Add Up, is also published in North America as The Data Detective. He's the host of two of my favourite radio shows and podcasts on BBC Radio 4, More or Less, and How to Vaccinate the World. And his latest Cautionary Tales podcast, a new series of that, is actually out this week. As he says, learning how to deal with numbers is not just about spotting lies, it's also about finding our way to the truth. This was such a fascinating conversation with Tim about how we overcome our biases and our prejudice, how we, as he says, calm down and try and think our way logically through making sense of numbers that are presented to us. I absolutely love chatting to Tim. I think you're really going to enjoy this and get a lot out of it. So I'm going to let you sit back and listen to me talking to Tim Harford. Tim, hi. Welcome. Welcome to It's Complicated. Hello. Your voice is so familiar because I think I literally listen to you every day.
1: I can only apologise.
2: No, it's been very soothing. I have to say the amount of times I've said, ah, but... Tim Harford just said this morning when someone's been throwing another kind of fake statistic at me. And actually, I was on a beach in Greece last summer in the middle of the pandemic. I managed to nip in and out in that kind of window between lockdown. And somebody on the beach was talking about more or less to me.
1: Can't escape from it. So that, you I, you get everywhere. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the, the, the word soothing, because one of the things that I'm trying to do is to get people to calm down a little bit because it helps them to think more clearly
2: that's a great place to jump into talking about your book your best-selling book how to make the world add up which is called the data detective in the u.s or do they say the Uh, data detective
1: uh, having done some interviews it varies but yes the data detective i say the data detective they might um, say the.
2: (laughs) you say data i say data
1: data detective in the u.s and canada and how to make the world add up everywhere else
2: it just seemed so prescient, this book, and I couldn't believe when I read it that it actually went to press just as the pandemic hit, because so much in it seems relevant to what we've just gone through in the last 12 months. And actually, I think about calming down. There was the brilliant quote from Florence Nightingale, who I didn't know was an early fan of data visualisation, who said, when I'm infuriated, I revenge myself with a new diagram. Which reminds me exactly of what's been going on on Twitter for the last 12 months. Um, yeah, I
1: mean, she Nightingale, well, we should talk about Nightingale because she really was amazing. And actually there's more exciting stuff to say about Nightingale. But on the subject specifically of when this book went to press, I was supposed to finish it by the end of March and send off the final edits, the end of March. And of course the UK was locked down about a week before then
2: March the 19th or 20th or something wasn't it yeah
1: Yeah, I think it was slightly later than that I think the government keeps saying they did it on the 19th but I then emailed my editor to say I've actually got a couple of things I might want to add to this book Uh, can I have a few more weeks and so I went through and tried to reflect the experience of the pandemic in the book but i think the interesting thing was it wasn't that difficult to do because there's a heck of a way to be proved right but everything that i've been saying in the book that statistics are actually not about winning political arguments they they're life or death stuff they they show us things that we can't see in any other way all of those sorts of arguments the the pandemic was just giving me the, the just the starkest and clearest Example of that, so I didn't have to rewrite much. I just had to add a page here and a page there to say, and the pandemic gives us a really good example of this, and I'll and I'll show you how.
2: So, what made you write it in the first place? Because as I was reading, I was thinking, this is so. I mean, literally every chapter. I took so many notes, Tim. There's no way we can cover all of it, but every chapter to me was so relevant to kind of the spread of misinformation and fake news and the war on truth, which seems to be going on online at the moment. So was it that environment that made you think, actually, this is what we really need? We need to calm down and look at numbers clearly.
1: It was. For a long time, people were encouraging me to write a book like this. Well, a book about numbers anyway, because... I've been presenting more or less on BBC Radio 4 for nearly 15 years. I, I, didn't, I didn't feel that I really had anything original to say. There were lots and lots of good books about how to interpret statistics and how to think clearly about statistics. And I thought, well, I, I don't want to just write another book and add it to the pile. And what really changed my mind was two things. One was the experience of 2016, 2016 going through the Brexit referendum, going through the election of Donald Trump and realising there is so much more to thinking clearly about the world than just the technical information about statistics. Yeah, you might know the difference between your correlations and your causations and all of that sort of thing, but it's not actually going to help you see what's true and what's not true. We need a much clearer view of our own biases and preconceptions and emotional responses, because the most expert people can fool themselves if they want to. That was one thing I realised. And the other thing was just this growing awareness that there was so much emphasis on lying with statistics, so much emphasis on fake news, and not enough emphasis on the fact that statistics can actually show you the truth. And people would say, they'd come up to me and say, oh, I really love More or less, really love the the way that you debunk all those false statistics. It always make me feel slightly uncomfortable because I feel, well, that's not the only thing we're doing. It is important to identify what's a lie, but it's also important to identify what's true. So those were really the two big realisations, the things that I wanted to do that I felt hadn't been done as clearly as, as I might hope in all of the great books that had come before me. This idea of the psychological element, thinking clearly, understanding your biases and this more positive vision of statistics. It's not just about spotting the lies. It's also about finding the truth.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was really struck that the first it's, it's sort of 10 rules, isn't it? 10 commandments for thinking about numbers. And okay. I think the first chapter, I'm probably going to get this wrong. It's the second is about feelings. It's noticing our emotional reactions to any kind of claim. And I thought, you know, that... I don't know what your view is, but is, is that why it's just things have become so bitter online? <laughs> because emotions are trumping logic. And if that is true, isn't it a losing battle?
1: Well, I, I don't think the, the situation is hopeless. I think it is difficult. You're right, it's chapter one of the book. There's an introduction, so maybe that's why you weren't sure whether it's chapter one or chapter two. But chapter one is... All about understanding, noticing your own emotional responses. And in fact, there's a story in that book. The book's full of stories, but the story that I begin that chapter with is about an art forgery an amazing, disturbing story of an art forgery where one of the world's leading experts basically fooled himself because the forgery wasn't any good, but he got carried away with his own emotions. And there are no numbers in that chapter, there's no statistics in that chapter. I'm just explaining the importance of of understanding these emotional responses now so what does what does the online environment do to that it doesn't help because a lot of what builds engagement and what helps things to go viral on social media is the emotional response now people see the the kitten and they feel joy they see the the rage tweet and they feel angry they feel justified, they're in denial. All of these different responses build engagement and get things spread. But I don't think we should fool ourselves that this is some unique feature of the 21st century. And newspaper headlines have always been designed to get people angry, to build that, that emotional engagement. And and I think journalists view, the, view that as part of their mission, or at least certain kinds of journalists view that as part of their mission. You know, this is... A, an outrage if my readers are not outraged having read this article well i've you know i've obviously not com- conveyed the gravity of the situation and of course outrage is sometimes justified anger is sometimes justified and that's why i don't say suppress your anger or control your anger i say notice it if you notice it at that point you're in a better situation to think clearly about what's going on
2: i think you had a absolutely kind of compelling study, which I think was right at the end in the conclusion of the book, about how emotions and kind of prejudice can blind us to what's going on. It's the the film, the piece of film that was shown. About the protest. Yeah, and it made me think about the the storming of the Capitol. So I don't know when you wrote it. You can't have written it after the storming of the Capitol, but (laughs) it is so it was, I just read it, you know, with chills thinking this is literally, you know, January the 6th. Can you just explain to everybody what it showed? Because that, for me, was such a strong example of kind of prejudice and bias in action.
1: Yeah, it's actually a, a sort of homage to an older psychological study where where people from Dartmouth and Yale were shown film of a of a really bad tempered football game between Dartmouth and Yale and they were asked to interpret how many fouls they saw and so on and the just the way that they interpreted the evidence of their own eyes was governed by their affiliation to Dartmouth or to Yale so this more modern study which is done by a, a Yale professor Dan Kahan and his and his group showed people footage of a protest outside a building And told some of the people, this is a protest outside an abortion clinic. They're trying to stop women getting abortions. And they're protesting that abortions are available. And other people were told, this is a protest outside an army recruitment centre. They're trying to stop people going to sign up for the the army. And it's a LGBT rights protest. Now, what is striking about that? study is that what people saw they were asked did the protesters were they abusive were they were they insulting were they threatening did they block access to the building those sorts of questions and these are just just look and you can see right whether they did or did not but what people said when they were responding really depended on whether they were politically sympathetic to the protesters or not so Experimental participants who were on the political right felt that the anti-abortion protesters – well, when they were told they were anti-abortion protesters, they they thought it was fine. But when people with similar political sympathies were told this is a pro-LGBT rights protest, they thought the protesters had behaved aggressively and had had crossed a line, and vice versa – with experimental participants who were on the left, they thought when they were told these protesters were anti-abortion protesters, they thought their behaviour was outrageous, and not not just whether it was justified or not, but that they had they had physically blocked access to the building, that they had intimidated passers-by, and so on. And they were looking at the and, same and piece it, of And it's sort of flipped. They're looking. Yeah. All four groups are looking at the same piece of film, but some of them are being told this is a group of people who share your values. And some of them are being told, this is a group of people who completely oppose your values. But all four of them are looking at exactly the same film. And they are disagreeing, not just about whether the protest is legitimate or reasonable or justified. They are arguing over the physical facts of the case. Like, did they obstruct people from entering the building? And the point I'm trying to make here is, yes, we can talk about the technical details of statistics, we can talk about sample selection bias and we can talk about p-numbers and all of these things. But if I can show you video and you can doubt the evidence of your own eyes because of your political beliefs and whether they're in sympathy or not with what you see, then we've got a deeper problem than just technical expertise.
2: I think one of the other chapters that really made me pause and think which I know is what all your book is intended to do was the idea of the big picture and I was thinking about the habit that everyone's got into of doom scrolling at the moment online
3: yeah.
2: and res- responding to you know breaking news with outrage and instant reaction and knee-jerk comment and your big picture chapter talks about the newspapers only published every week or every month or even you've got an example of a paper published every 50 years and how that would tell us a very different story of what's going on in the world than our instant reactions so tell us a bit more about that because I think that's really relevant to the online environment and how we're reacting so quickly without thought really to things that are unfolding.
1: Yeah I think so it's very important to put everything in context, and one element of that is trying to take a reasonable time horizon. So the idea of a 25-year newspaper or a 50-year newspaper, this is not my idea, it's, it's originally inspired it's brilliant by brilliant idea, isn't it? It's yeah. a <laughs> wonderful idea. It's inspired by the research of some Norwegian sociologists, and it's been brought into popular consciousness by the, the Oxford-based economist Max Rosa, who runs the R World in Data website. So it's his it's his idea, but I think it's really powerful just to reflect on what is it that a newspaper would say if it had not been published since nineteen ninety six? What would be highlighted, what what are the important pieces of news, or if it hadn't been published since nineteen seventy one, or if it hadn't been published since nineteen twenty one. What what counts as news? What counts as being worthy of observing Changes depending on the timescale. And one point I think it's important to note, and Stephen Pinker has made this point, is it's not so much that the news is always biased towards bad things. It's just that the news is always biased towards surprising things. And surprisingly good things tend not to happen quickly. They tend to happen slowly. Whereas surprisingly bad things can happen very fast indeed. So, So you tend to be a little bit more optimistic about most things. Not everything, but most things if you have a slower timescale. It's just easier to highlight a lot of the stories that matter. So the, the escape from global poverty that has been really pronounced over the last few decades. Or on the downside, much easier to say something sensible about climate change if you're looking back 100 years or 50 years than if you're looking back to yesterday morning.
3: My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Morning.
2: It really struck me when I read that chapter that we're ignoring all the important things. You know, when you kind of (laughs) summarised what we would look back on over the last 25 and 50 years, I thought actually it's the big picture stuff that's, you know, as you say, poverty declining. Whereas I think you mentioned in the book, if you ask people, they think instinctively poverty at least hasn't got any better, but it may have even got worse. And climate change being really quite dramatic. It's the big stuff that we're somehow neglecting with our always on instant you know, newsfeed and reaction to everything. And that seemed really worrying when I read that.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I speak as someone who writes a column for a daily newspaper, although I, I suppose I could argue for the weekly perspective. So more or less comes out every week and my column comes out on in the Saturday Financial Times. But I do think absorbing the, the current affairs Week by week, rather than day by day, and certainly not hour by hour. It's I mean, you tend to feel better. Reading The Economist makes me feel better than reading Twitter, but I think you're also likely to gain more insight, and for that matter, waste less time. So it's a, it's a win-win. Uh, and I speak as someone whose whose job it is, in fact, to to read the news.
2: So you are a journalist, and you just mentioned about headlines earlier, and journalists. Well, some journalists sensationalising headlines, you know, that's always happened. But if that is the case, and I think you had an example of some research from Oxfam, I know you're going to correct me if I've got this wrong, of how a journalist can take a piece of research and either interpret it in the wrong way or emphasise the wrong thing. If that's happening consistently, how can any of us get to the truth? Unless every time we see a headline, we find the original piece of research, analyse the data you know drill down through the research finding do we have to do that all the time or is it about where we get our news
1: from I think it's more about where you get your news from no one has time to check every source for every claim and I don't think it you know quite apart from the fact that it's impossible and no one's going to do it I don't think it's really necessary but you do need to establish that you can you can trust the The source of what you're reading, you can trust the journalist, or you can trust the if it's a blog post from a think tank or something like that. You know, you have some degree that they are trustworthy. And to to, to boil down all of the advice in the book to a very quick soundbite, I would emphasise the three C's: so calm, context, and curiosity. So we've talked about calm. You need to notice your emotional reaction and put it to one side for a second then you're thinking more clearly. Context, we've, we've talked a little bit about the, the idea of a 25-year newspaper, but context is all about also about where did this come from? Who produced this claim and why did they produce it? It's about useful comparisons. Is this a big number or a small number? Is this number going up or is it going down? All of these things that help to establish context. And then the final thing is curiosity, which is, is this part of trying to win some argument which is not how a curious person uses data or is it trying to understand the world is this statistic a window onto the world or is it a weapon in an argument so those three c's calm context curiosity no one has time to to go through all 10 rules or even all three steps every single time they see a statistic but you can ask yourself is this journalist or is this newspaper, is this TV channel, is it tending to, to respect those three rules? Am I being given information in a calm manner? Or are they trying to wind me up? Are they trying to engage an emotional reaction? Am I being given the context? Where, where did the number come from? How does it fit into the broader picture? Is it going up or down? That's important. And Am I being presented with this in a way that satisfies my curiosity, that helps me understand the world? Or is it just some very shocking number that is trying to convince me of you know, that somebody is wrong and somebody is right? So if, if the, the source that you're consulting, if the journalist who's giving you this information, is giving you in, it in a way that respects calm, gives you context and and tries to satisfy your curiosity. My feeling is you're probably in safe hands. Can't guarantee it, but it, it's a it's a good pointer.
2: So do you think we should stop getting our news from social media if that's where we're getting it from and go directly to trusted news sources? You know, is, is there just something about the social media environment and the way news is spread and engaged with that actually makes it inherently a difficult or an untrustworthy medium for us to be getting news, important news from?
1: I think it depends on who you are following on social media. So epidemiology Twitter is a pretty awesome place right now. There are some remarkable epidemiologists, people in medical statisticians, people who really understand the evidence. They are helping to interpret the latest data, they're responding very quickly to the latest daily death numbers, for example, the latest study that shows that this vaccine is working or this vaccine is disappointing in some way. So if you're following the right people and you're willing to, to pay attention and to slow down, I wouldn't say Twitter is useless for that. That said, even if you're following the right people, social media is a place that invites people to get upset it invites quick takes it invites anger so people who i think are absolutely terrific analysts of the the pandemic who will occasionally just be venting about how certain politicians should be in prison or whatever none, none of this is helpful but i wouldn't rule it out you can learn a lot if you're following the right people and for, you know, for me, I'm trying to follow the statisticians and the epidemiologists and the economists. My wife is a photographer. She follows photographers on Twitter. And if the photographers are constantly arguing about Brexit, then she unfollows them because she, what she wants is insight about photography. So it does depend how you use it. I think it is reasonable to say, though, if your aim is to become better informed about the world... Uh, how exactly are you planning to use Twitter or Facebook to do that? What is it that we're hoping to gain from these social media sites and, and to use them very deliberately to deliver that or not or, and, and try to avoid all the side effects that you know, none of us want?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's been a useful jumping off point. I've, I've found some fantastic scientists that I followed during COVID and it's then been a jumping off point for me to either buy their book or find out more about them or that's really useful. I think Twitter's good for that, isn't it? Finding people. But the people with the huge followings, as you say, are often the ones that are using outrage or being sensationalist. That's why they've got huge followings and engagement and not always the ones making sense. I think that's right. So I want to move on to talk about, Tim, your personal relationship with tech because I vividly remember a piece you wrote for the FT at the end of 2019 how behavioural economics helped me kick my smartphone addiction. So I wanted to ask you, are you still a smartphone addict? Because you very much identified as one, or all the strategies that you talked about putting in place in that piece, have they worked?
1: I think they mostly have. It's certainly not 100% success. It's. I think that one of the people I spoke to warned me that it's all very well doing that but you just wait till you've got a book out and see if you can see if you <laughs> which can Which you have at the it, moment <laughs> which I have at the moment and yeah. so I'm I'm back on Twitter a lot more yeah so some of it I would say is a is a complete success I, I haven't got Twitter on my phone oh, I don't I have Facebook on my, yeah. yeah I don't have Facebook on my phone I've got no interest in and I don't and the last time I looked at Facebook was probably a month ago I mean I don't I don't use Facebook there are some automatic posts from my website to my author page on Facebook, but I don't use Facebook. I use Twitter more than I would like, I'm trying to use it to you know to get the word out about my my book and my articles but it it is a tricky thing because it's it's a very sticky sort of medium. You can't just set up a few advanced tweets and and leave it. I find that once I've used it, for example, right now, I'm just, uh, as we talk, I'm going to go over to Twitter and I'm going to type it into it because you just need to type TW in the, your Chrome browser and, and boom, off it pops. And it's, now it's saying, well, you're not logged in. Now, there you go. That was my smartphone pinging because I need to give the two-factor authentication code. So that's the reminder that tells me you weren't supposed to be on Twitter this afternoon. So I'm not logged in and it's a bit of a faff to log in. So I think that tells you I've I've got it somewhat under control. But it, it is definitely not a straightforward thing. I'm a, a firmly a believer in the idea of deliberate and mindful use of technology. I know Cal Newport is very good on this. His his book yeah, Digital Minimalism fantastic. is is yeah. is excellent. And and the point being that nothing should happen by default. Nothing should just you shouldn't be drifting into it. You should be being very deliberate. And that's, that's what I've tried to do. And I would, I'd give myself seven out of 10. I think I'm okay.
2: Do you think the difference was taking, if we just look at Twitter, taking it off your phone? I mean, is that in itself a you know, was that a kind of game changer doing that?
1: I, no, I think it's part, it's part of it. It's not, it doesn't completely help. So the other things I've taken off my phone, for example, are Feedly, the blog reader, and I've, yeah. I find blogs very useful, but Again, I'm trying to take them off off the phone, but unless you're going to get rid of your browser on your phone, mm. there is still the you possibility to, to yes. yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's tricky. Something that I've found very helpful is I have my Gmail set up uh, so that uh, I use something called multiple inbox. What you can do there is you, if you're looking at Gmail on in, on a desktop browser, if you've added a, a star to a an email that moves it to your star inbox and my star inbox is for stuff that I actually need to take action on or you can tick it twice and it gives you it gives it a blue tick and a blue tick is stuff to read and then tick it three times it gives you um, a red symbol and the red symbol is this is stuff I'm waiting for somebody else to get back to me so I've got these I've got my inbox at the top, which is the genuine inbox. This is stuff that's coming in. Then I've got my, my yellow inbox for action. I've got my blue inbox for reading. I've got my red inbox right at the bottom for waiting for. That I find very effective. But what I found a very pleasant side effect is if an email comes in on my phone and I think, I can't deal with this because it needs a keyboard, really. It's kind of complicated. If I hit star and then delete it from my phone I can no longer see it on my phone but then the next time I fire up my browser and I'm sitting it's at my like, desktop with my yeah. keyboard in front of me there it is waiting for me Very neat. so that's a yeah. that's a way so my phone I can check email delete 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 you know yes no quick response and um, but all the stuff that requires something more substantive I'm just postponing until I'm sitting at my computer again that is pretty effective
2: you said in the piece that you spent more time interacting with your phone than you did interacting with your children. So I was wondering, have they noticed a difference?
1: <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I mean, my children don't necessarily always want to interact with me now that we've all been locked down together for the <laughs> oh, last year. Oh, tell me about it, yes. <laughs> but, but yes, no, it, I think it has, it has helped. But it is an ongoing process because the, you know, the phone is constantly... Potentially tugging at your attention, and there there are always new threats. So, for instance, I've had to install WhatsApp on my phone because all my siblings have decided that that's how they all want oh, to keep in touch.
2: Family WhatsApp group—it's lethal, uh, uh,
1: you know. Uh, but I, you know, we're trying to check out, uh, you know, check in. You know, my father's in his late seventies. He, you know, he's got diabetes. He's very vulnerable to COVID. He's he is he lives with my stepmother. The two of them are by themselves. Need to check in that they're okay. So I could just say, I'm not part of this WhatsApp group, I'm gonna do that completely separately. But it's I think it's easier to be on the WhatsApp group. The WhatsApp group, by the way, is muted, so I'm not getting notifications. But once you're on WhatsApp, suddenly anybody can phone you. Suddenly, all these other stuff, yeah, all this other stuff is coming through on WhatsApp. So there's a challenge. You know, there's no there's no straightforward solution. I think Cal is very good on this, Cal Newport. He says you've got to make your decisions and You've got to accept there there will always whatever decisions you make there will be some bad consequences. You shouldn't be using tech to mean that you never have to apologize to anybody you know sometimes you'll have to say sorry, I was off my phone for six hours or or whatever sorry i don't I don't ever check my Facebook notifications you've got to be willing to to take that downside if you're going to avoid all the distraction uh, I do think it's important to note though. People really focus on smartphones, and I think there's reason for that. But the the desktop computer is potentially just as distracting. I sit at my computer most of the day, particularly given that we're all at home these days.
2: Yeah, I think people have noticed it more, haven't they? It's yeah. Being at home, per- yeah.
1: Perfectly possible to be distracted on your desktop computer. Uh, and, and the same sort of things apply. You try to prevent yourself getting sucked into slightly soothing habits that distract you from real work i've got a a plugin installed on the browser if i if i click it it just switches off anything that might distract me including email for an hour and uh that that's so you my remi- right yeah yeah it's just my reminder to get on with get on and focus
2: I've got three questions, Tim, that I'd like to ask you that I end the podcast with that you might have already covered in some of the stuff we've just been talking about, but really thinking about your your tech habits and your relationship with your devices. So this should be very easy for you as a wordsmith. Three words to sum up your relationship with uh, tech and the digital world.
1: Love-hate relationship.
2: Brilliant. (laughs) Brilliant. And what do you wish you'd known about digital? It's such a huge environment to talk about before you started using it. Because obviously, I'm guessing you are the age that you know you weren't using digital when you were at school, when you were at university, the internet, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's, this, that's a big assumption. I, I've been using. Oh, actually, no, no, com- no. I'm, I've been I'm using computers since, yeah. since 1981. Yeah. So my, both my parents were computer geeks, and. So we had our first computer at home in 1981, 1982. So I would have been about eight years old. So I have been using digital for a very long time. And I think the lesson from that is it changes. You you could be distracted by playing Pac-Man or Space Invaders as a kid. You -hmm. could be distracted by Twitter in 2021. But it does change. It's changing all the time smartphones are fairly new. They keep changing. You know, people are now trying to get me to sign up for Clubhouse. This is a, a, oh, new, a new yes. possible source of distraction. I've, res- um, I've
2: resisted that so far.
1: It's, it's always changing. And of course, life is always changing. The The age of my children is changing. The fact that at this particular time, I'm trying to write, whereas at this particular time, I'm trying to sell a book. Mm. The use of technology is is different. So, I think the lesson is you there is no one thing about tech that you need to know. You, you just need to be on your guard for the fact that it's constantly altering.
2: Yeah, and you've mentioned distraction a lot. So I'm wondering if, you know, for you and for a lot of people, the issue is we need to realise just how distracting it is. You know, I, I I talk to kids at school about computer games, about how, you know, they can really pull them in but it's just dealing with different types of distractions isn't it as we get older
1: absolutely absolutely and i mean some of the most insidious distractions are the ones that pretend not to be distractions so email is email is really difficult because email is work but it's not it's not necessarily the most important the deepest the most significant work so if you click off to watch a youtube video or you play a little computer game you can be honest with yourself. This is a distraction. This is, this is a, an activity that I'm doing in order to not do any work. But you can spend all day on email telling yourself yeah, you're working. That and you're you working. sort of are.
2: Yes. And finally, what do you think you've learned about yourself from your relationship with your phone, tech, digital, any aspect of the digital and connected world?
1: I would hark back to that previous point the the phone is always changing the computer is always changing the internet is always changing and and my life is always changing what i want to do what i'm trying to do the different projects i'm working on so while it's appealing to say this is the rule that i adopt this is my my motto for dealing with these various challenges and opportunities that the tech world throws up those rules are always going to have to evolve And that's that's tricky.
2: That's fantastic. Thank you so much. I want to encourage everyone listening to go out and buy your book, How to Make the World Add Up. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I read it in one sitting because I was so I couldn't put it down. It's called The Data Detective or The Data Detective in North America. But yes, it's now a bestseller, I noticed on Amazon so
1: it, it, with, it is indeed it yeah is indeed. so congratulations yes. who, it's really... who knew there were so many wonderful geeks out there
2: <laughs> so thank you so much Tim
1: it's my pleasure thank you
2: thank you for listening to this episode of it's complicated If you haven't already, please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. It helps other people find us and it means you get a helpful little notification when a new episode becomes available. For more about getting a healthy balance with tech, you can follow me, Tanya Goodin, or Time to Log Off on Instagram and Twitter. And both my books, Off and Stop Staring at Screens, are available on Amazon and at all good bookshops. Finally, for more information about this and other episodes in the podcast series, visit it's no time to log off.com.
0: Lost everything you tried to say cuz we've all been swept